Welcome to Trade Finance Talks, a podcast from Trade Finance Global. During this series, we'll be hearing from global experts, as well as learning about the latest trends, technology and insights in the world of international trade and receivables finance. Episode 76. Yeah, this market has experienced a significant recovery in 21 after uh, naturally a very weak 2020 characterised by the COVID pandemic. Are we in a short circuit scenario whereby in 10, 15 or 20 years time, the gas industry will disappear simply because everyone has to become green. In Japan, gas is part of the future energy mix. The government has said that uh, by 2030, gas will be about 20% of the uh, power generation mix, which is lower. Welcome back to Reuters Events Commodities Trading 2021. In this panel session, we'll cover the LNG outlook over the next couple of years. My name is Tapesh Patel, editor at Trade Finance Global and host of the podcast Trade Finance Talks. First of all, thank you very much to the great Reuters team for putting on such a brilliant virtual event so far. And as always, it's great for Trade Finance Global to partner with Reuters Commodities for the second year running. So when I received this invite to moderate a panel on LNG, the first thing that came to mind was the roller coaster ride that gas has been on for the past 12 to 18 months. From record lows to record highs in less than a year and a half, LNG was battered by the early impact of the pandemic and now finds itself unable to keep up with the global recovery in demand. That demand has piggybacked on economic growth as it rebounds from the low baseline of the pandemic and has also been lent a helping hand by a cold northern hemisphere winter in 2020. But despite the plain sailing weather-wise, gas supplies are still troubled by production issues. Coal shortages in China have led not only to power outages in one of the world's largest markets, but also to greater competition for energy between Asia and Europe culminating in LNG prices hitting 34 per million British thermal units last month. Compared with just $2 in May 2020, volatility is still the recurring theme for LNG, despite the waning of the pandemic. So is LNG set for another period of volatility, or have we already seen the worst of its ups and downs during the height of the pandemic? Joining me to discuss these issues are my distinguished colleagues, Jonathan Westby, Senior Vice President at Jira Global Markets, Richard Bowler, Head of LNG Trading and Portfolio Operations at any Global Energy Markets, and Rosario Scariotio, Head of LNG trading at Soccar Trading. So quick introductions from you all. Jonathan, over to you. Could you give a quick background of who you are, where you're from and what you do? Good morning, good afternoon and good evening to everybody listening, uh, depending on where you are. My name is Jonathan Westby. I've been in the LNG industry now for 20 or so years, gas and then LNG. I think it's a fascinating industry. I think it's a brilliant industry because even though I've spent a lot of my time thinking about it, talking about it, as you've just described, its ability to um, present us new challenges and new opportunities is something I really enjoy. So I currently work for Jera Global Markets here in Singapore, manage their commercial trading activity and look forward to the panel discussion today. Thanks, Jonathan. Great to have you. And Richard, over to you. Thank you, Deepesh. Yes, Richard Bowler, 
I head up the trading team for LNG at any global energy markets, which is the trading arm of uh, NESPA, a diversified energy company. We have a medium-sized supply portfolio, roughly 10 million tons of, of LNG. And it's the job of me and my team to optimize and, if you like, make the best of the portfolio that we have given the market conditions that we face. Many years of strategy growth from its equity gas, and in recent years we've been pretty successful in discovering new supply locations like Egypt, Indonesia, East and West Africa, and we've got a growing global portfolio base of customer and substantial downstream positions, particularly in Europe. So like Jonathan, I think I'm fascinated by the LNG industry, and these last two years have been a, an immense roller coaster, which no two days have uh, been the same. And I, I think looking forward, it's uh, it'll be well, it'll be interesting today to hear the views of my my peers <laughs> and to, to discuss. Uh, where we're moving with this market, particularly with the incoming interest on decarbonisation. Absolutely. Thank you, Richard. And we'll go on to that point later. Rosario, what about you? Yeah, thank you, Depeche. I'm uh, Rosario Zgariot. I'm uh, heading up the LNG trading uh, team uh, for SOCAR Trading. SOCAR Trading is the trading arm of um, SOCAR our mother company in Baku, Azerbaijan. Been with the company about four years, uh, hopefully giving a decent contribution into the company's move into the gas, global gas space, as it seeks to diversify from its uh, traditional core business being oil. And these days, gas is not only the topic of discussion, obviously, carbon is also a very intense topic of discussion. For this company, I just want to echo my peers' comments about uh, the uh, excitement in this industry. I have been in this industry now about 20 years. And when you paint an industry this long, it feels sometimes natural to think or say that you've seen it all. And every time you say that, you have to rethink again. But one thing is for sure, is somebody once told me LNG is boom and bust. And uh, I think what we've seen this past couple of years is no exception to that saying. So I'm quite um, quite keen to see how it's going to look forward. Thanks, Rosario. Thank you very much. And what a distinguished panel and, and so much excitement here about the commodities super cycle. Richard, from your perspective, what's driving this and, and what's the impact from your perspective and your company? You did a, a reasonable introduction, <laughs> Dennis Deepesh, to touch on quite a few of the points that have, have really driven the movements that we've experienced in the last couple of years. Yeah, this market has experienced a significant recovery in 21 after uh, naturally a very weak 2020 characterized by the COVID pandemic. What we saw in 2020 that was interesting and then I guess a relatively new phenomenon was the ability for supply to cope in as much as we've now recently had this surge of production from the US, which is something that to a certain degree can be switched on and switched off. So I think actually, despite the very low prices that we did see for a period of 2020, we did see a supply response. What we then saw, I think, and which demonstrated how fragile the LNG equilibrium can actually be, was a number of events as demand picked up, coupled with a significantly cold winter, coupled with some operational issues, or say around well, which we're experiencing again today around the Panama Canal, coupled with some production outages, then led from let's say the sublime to the to the ridiculous. And this winter we saw a pretty substantial uh, spike. We've then seen it really as a consequence of what's been happening in Europe with low storages. I think it's worth touching maybe on the demand situation because we did see demand come back very strongly. Perhaps ignoring the last couple of months because the last month or so we're now in the territory where prices are leading to demand destruction. But when the market came back after COVID, you know, we were seeing growth levels of probably as much as 15% for demand of LNG in 
places like India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and the traditional markets, Japan, Korea, Taiwan, and China are also coming back with very, very strong growth, strong growth in the Atlantic, particularly from Brazil and from Turkey. And all of this together with, I guess, an increasing interconnectedness between the East and the Atlantic. And that's really what we're seeing, I think, probably over the course of the last three or four months as Europe has failed to sufficiently fill its storages. And we're now seeing a battle, if you like, between Europe and the East for who can afford, to a certain extent, to to stock up their energy reserves. Thanks, Richard. And you're right, inventories are now certainly running tight in Europe and Asia, and there is a a mismatch in global supply and demand. Rosario, how bad is the supply-demand mismatch? Match and what are the impacts of these on global markets? As Richard pointed out, I think the mismatch is probably equally pronounced as it was on the other side just a year and a half ago when uh, you know when we were in just in the middle of the pandemic and we had a big drop in demand from uh, all over the world. The issue that we're facing today with the ability to predict to a certain extent how demand will evolve is a lot linked to policy. We know that China is the biggest participant and uh, can become a market maker effectively can move the market significantly. And we have uh, certainly tested that uh, more than a few times. And the ability of uh, these big countries to buy more or less gas and to formulate that demand forecast is strongly driven by policy, as I said. And policy has created a great degree of uncertainty in the marketplace, which ultimately is explaining the biggest volatility that we're seeing these days. The policy is also a very big factor affecting the supply of gas to Europe, as we know. All these elements combined together are creating a uh, perfect cocktail to create these huge imbalances as uh, we're seeing today. I personally do not think that things are going to improve. So volatility and mainly uncertainty is going to be the big theme going forward, particularly as we, as everyone tries to move towards a sort of a greener, way of operating, knowing how green we should be and by when and what everyone else is going to do. And I think it's certainly been quite the week at at COP26 with China not even showing up in Glasgow. Can you talk through some of those potential scenarios that perhaps you've either modelled out or thought about and what that could actually mean for global markets, whether that's in terms of China demand, transition to LNG and also decarbonisation, Rosario? There's been a lot of talk as to, you know, how, what's the remaining life of the gas? industry. Are we in a short circuit scenario whereby in 10, 15 or 20 years time, the gas industry will disappear simply because everyone has to become green? There's a lot of talk about that, but I think the situation is is obviously that the landscape is a lot more complex because as you said, there are countries who are committing to certain targets, but not what was expected, certainly not within the time frame that was indicated, like you see India making a commitment to 2070, China not turning up at COP26 and giving this strong political message. If there's no harmony across nations as to how they're going to implement the green policies going forward, I think it's just going to create more confusion and uncertainty in how gas is going to play within this. What's the role of gas? Whether we like it or not, gas is going to still be there. And signals or these are being given by, you know, the big amount of uh, long-term contracting activity that we have seen these days. I mean, it's making in the news almost every day. This is a new end user that is signing up to a long-term contract from the US, from uh, whether they're brownfield producers or greenfield producers. But this is still happening. We're talking about 20, 25 years contracts. Qatar obviously has been uh, having a dominating role in this sense. This means that you know people are still, participants are still there to contract for long-term gas and LNG, this big transition push. So I still see very much gas 
having an important role in the transition, particularly as uh, can face with the uncertainties as to how green can you become and how quickly and who is going to bear the cost and how the various new risks that this brings will be allocated across the value chain of participants. This has never been discussed. It's still very much up in the air. So ahead of us is a lot of things to still go through and clarify. And so, as I said, lots of uncertainty going forward. Thanks, Rosario. And we'll talk about that as well as those contracts. And I think also, quite importantly, the financing piece a little bit later on. Jonathan, what was your view on some of these recent events? And and is gas here to stay? I think um, just listening to my colleagues on the panel, I've heard the word sort of uh, some really interesting words there, volatility, ambiguity, uncertainty. And I totally agree with all of those sentiments. I think we've been through, as Richard nicely described, a very interesting 18 months where we've seen a lot of different extremes in the market. In terms of looking ahead, I think, um, I mean, certainly from our company's perspective, you know, in Japan, gas is part of the future energy mix. The government has said that uh, by 2030, gas will be about 20% of the uh, power generation mix, which is lower than the 2019 base is considerably lower. So in a certain sense, that's not so optimistic for gas. I think where we see things, though, is that gas, you know, there's two ways of looking at it. It's a smaller number, but it's still very much part of the mix. And and going back to the, the uncertainty that exists as we build out renewables, as the existing fleet, uh, some aging coal plants, some aging gas plants, other thermal, and we have uncertain nuclear situation in Japan. That creates a lot of ambiguity about the supply-demand balance on a month-to-month, season-to-season basis. And therefore, we're likely to see demand fluctuations where we go from periods where there's huge demand and and a lot of stress in the market to periods where that demand disappears. So therefore, we think at at Jera that the way to deal with this is through sort of developing more agile procurement sort of policies and sort of the long-term model is needed. It definitely is needed to underpin future investment in the gas market. But equally, companies need to be able to develop trading capabilities, trading skill sets in order to manage the uncertainties that are coming their their way. And that is why here at Jera Global Markets, I mean, our business is only just over two years old. We were formed in April 2019 for that sole purpose, to expand Jera's footprint in the trading activity, asset-backed trading in particular, optimizing the portfolio and helping the company manage the uncertainty that it faces going forward. So we see gas here to stay. But what we think is that people need to keep evolving their business models in order to be able to deal with the uncertainty that all the different parameters are are going to throw at us. I guess it's really important to have that agile mindset when dealing with a situation like we've seen in the past 18 months. And it's important to remember this is a transition. Gas is obviously still a big contributor of carbon emissions. Richard, what role has the energy transition played in LNG prices skyrocketing in the past 18 months or so? To be frank, I think very little. The last 18 months, there's been many, many other factors that have been causing this volatility. I think we're only really just just starting to see the impact of the energy transition. For me, I think that actually LNG flexibility can actually facilitate the introduction of intermittent renewable energies. I think LNG is actually very well placed in the stack. And I I think maybe when we talk about financing later on, we'll we'll perhaps recognize that also trans institutions are looking at it in that way as well. And I think LNG has proven to be a pretty reliable and robust tool um, to help reduce emissions and improve air quality by displacing polluting fuels. And I think also that 
LNG is, is developing solutions to minimize its carbon footprint, which should help contribute to a smoother energy transition. Looking back, I don't think it's had a major impact, but looking forward, this it's unquestionably going to be incredibly important. And, and maybe in the in the medium term, there are opportunities that the flexibility of, of LNG should bring. I touched briefly on this sort of developing solutions to manage the carbon footprint, minimize carbon footprint, and we're seeing you know, an increasing number carbon neutral LNG cargoes transacting these days. BNI transacted its first LNG carbon neutral LNG cargo just a couple of months ago with CPC of Taiwan covering scope one, two, and three emissions for a cargo of Indonesian LNG. The greenhouse gas emissions for that were related to the entire value chain were, um, were offset through the retirement of high quality nature-based credits from Red Plus Forestry projects in Malawi and Zambia. Thanks, Richard. And Rosario, I know you mentioned decarbonization as, I guess, an intermittent renewable energy source. Do you see LNG as a transitionary substitute as, as we move towards renewables? I definitely see it. As, as Richard was pointing out, LNG has proven to be a commodity that can actually contribute to minimize the carbon footprint and uh, as well as respond to the big fluctuations of demand that we have seen these days. LNG has been quite resilient, notwithstanding everything that we have seen, notwithstanding the big moves up and down, still proven to be a quite a reliable commodity. And um, it's true that there is an ongoing effort across all participants to embed within their LNG transactions the cost of carbon. And whether we like it or not, that's going to be the way forward. And we're already paying for the high costs of carbon today with the high flat prices that we're seeing these days. One of the reasons is not just because the world is demanding more gas, but because also carbon prices have gone up quite significantly, and that's obviously supporting the price of gas. Before we move on to financing, let's talk about pricing. And Jonathan, given the excitement for energy pricing, what pricing should we use? And I'm talking about you know an LNG versus a JKM indice or, or swaps. As I was saying earlier, the development of companies' abilities to deal in the short-term market and and trade in the market is important. But obviously, you need a functioning, healthy market in order to be able to conduct those activities. And we here at GRGM trade, we have positions both in Asia and in Europe and find that both markets present uh, good levels of liquidity and market access for us to be able to engage in our risk management activities. So TTF is clearly the primary European index, and that has proven to be a very resilient and uh, effective risk management tool. JKM, I think, had a a reasonably slow start. I mean, I, you know, I can't remember the exact years, but for many years, the discussion about will it ever take off? And yet you compare those discussions to where we are today, where you can risk manage multiple cargoes over periods of time quite effectively. That's important because, as I say, when you're dealing with unknown demand and uh, uncertain supply situations, your ability to execute risk management strategies in the market is very important. So we're pleased that the market is showing signs that not only is the physical market getting deeper, but there's a functioning sort of financial market sitting alongside it for us to be able to risk manage our positions. Perhaps just to add to that as well, I mean, I think it's been very apparent the last few months about the interconnectedness between markets in in both Asia and and Europe. You mentioned that TTF, JKM. The majority of the financial traders, and there is a growing body of financial trading around the LNG market, but it's very apparent that most of those these days are concentrating on 
that particular spread, that are trading that particular spread, both physically and financially, looking at the R between the two basins, look at the connectedness of shipping and freight rates, and being able to manage that in a financial way. And I think that's definitely a key development of this market over the last couple of years. Thanks, Beth. And I guess moving on to the actual financing of these projects. Jonathan, what's your view? Because obviously, historically, we tend to go for these really longer term project financing deals on LNG. How do you think that that's going to change? And also, obviously, banks' appetite towards these kind of risks are probably decreasing a bit. So uh, what's going to happen? Are we going to see a secondary market? Are we going to see alternatives stepping in, etc.? It's possibly one of the most fundamental questions behind the future development of the market. We tend to focus on the spot market, and we've talked a lot about how liquidity and depth is appearing there. We do also need a healthy long-term market to underpin sort of future supply. Now, I think taking FID on an LNG project has always been phenomenally difficult anyway, because you need to align customers, the right project, the right economics with the right financing and the right balance sheet in order to underwrite the risk associated with a very large spend. It's always been very difficult anyway. And now I think if financing in particular becomes difficult because gas is a fossil fuel. So I think if banks do find it difficult to finance projects going forward because gas is a fossil fuel, then that's going to possibly put at risk the development of the long-term market. And so therefore, people are going to have to think about alternative ways of developing projects. I think one of the things that's been discussed is the fact that it possibly plays to um, NOC strength in the fact that they're possibly the types of organization now that can put these projects together better and more effectively than some private companies. And Richard, what's your view? It's unquestionable there's been a significant decline in, in upstream investments. I believe in 2021, there was something like 350 billion invested in oil and gas projects compared to 700 billion going back to 2014. So there's no arguing that a direction of travel. I think LNG, again, is pretty well placed, certainly compared to others. There was a, a report this week uh, by Poland Partners that said the average funding cost for LNG liquefaction is about well, 260 basis points, to quote from this report, which sits well ahead of coal at 800 basis points and also ahead of EMP, so around 550, but it slips behind renewables at 220 basis points. So I think LNG sits pretty well, actually, in that curve. For the years ahead, I think the, the kind of the, the key to securing attractive financing for LNG companies will to position them themselves high on the green curve, yeah, given that financiers have emission targets as well. Rosario, what was your perspective from Sokar Trading's perspective on getting that financing? Well, I definitely um, share the view that it's going to get more challenging for the LNG industry to access to relatively, let's say, cheap funding for new projects. So the cost of financing inevitably is going to increase. And uh, I believe, in my opinion, there's going to be a higher degree of um, equity capital required from the financing community for them to undertake, to underwrite these projects. So eventually the participants, LNG and gas participants, will have to put more capital at risk in the business, as well as, as uh, Richard mentioned, position themselves higher up in the green curve, making sure that uh, you know whoever is funding this project is funding a company that is a genuine undertaking to transition into greener energy in some shape or form, which is the hot topic of debate. 
Thank you very much. And I guess one final question that I've been grappling with and, and talk of blackouts. We've seen worrying news and footage coming out of China indicating things could get worse over there before they get better. And, and they are a bit of a, a market maker and there could be a COVID recession. <clears throat> it's always hard to get reliable information out of their continued lockdowns. How do you factor China in relation to this and China risk moving forwards? Who would like to take that question? I can take that question. I mean, for the little that we know about China, to be honest, I don't think that China is going to commit to definitive energy transition timelines and targets at the detriment of their own sort of domestic policies and making sure that the economy domestically is robust enough and can guarantee those type of growth, uh, GDP growth levels that they have almost committed to in front of uh, the uh, international community. As a matter of fact, we've seen these days China certainly restarting uh, big production of coal facilities despite their sort of uh, late commitment to actually face out of coal or restarting, for example, a coal deal that they had for some time sort of stopped with uh, Australia, importing coal from Australia. So they started to really import coal from Australia. So I think China is going to act flexibly and always in the interest of its own, to, you know, in the interest of its primary domestic purposes. Jonathan, just moving forward and given the nature of, of what you do at Jera, how does one cope with that volatility, ambiguity and uncertainty moving forward? And how can one really look to, I guess, seeking some stability in LNG markets moving forwards. Lots of trading companies will say the same thing, that they set themselves up. Their purpose is actually about being able to manage that uncertainty on behalf of the organizations that they work for. So for us, it's about, um, you know, it's getting the basics right in terms of making sure we have some really great people on board mm -hmm. and, and some excellent capabilities so that we can understand the markets and then we can take effective strategies to manage them. For JERA, um, obviously, um, we our primary purpose is to ensure security of supply to our core market, which is Japan. And so therefore, we're constantly scanning the market, understanding it, and making sure that we can uh, perform that role on behalf of the bigger organization. That's absolutely what we do. And we will be judged against our ability to do that. So hopefully we can do a good job. Thank you very much. Well, look, I'm afraid that's all we have time for. So Rosario, Richard, Jonathan, thank you very much for joining me at this Royce Events Commodity Trading 2021 virtual conference. I think now we're taking a short break. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Trade Finance Talks. Be sure to subscribe to our podcasts at tradefinanceglobal.com.